Please open your Bibles to the book of Daniel. Today we'll be looking at the last three chapters of this book. We're going to close out our series today. Originally I thought we might separate these out, but when you read through the passage, it's pretty evident that this is essentially one one passage that all goes together. So there's really no, no good place to separate it out. We're not going to read the entire thing. We'll be reading bits and pieces as we go in order to kind of get the sense of it. It is a long passage, but one that we hope we will be blessed by as we read. When you look at the reason that God gave the book of Daniel, you can, you can look at that on a try to grasp the whole book at one time, or you could just look at these last few chapters. And here we see in chapter 10, the Lord coming to Daniel and providing a word of truth. Look with me there in verses uh, 1 and 2 of chapter 10. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belshazzar, and the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word, and he had understanding of the vision. The point is just that God brings him a true word, a true word about a great conflict, and that Daniel understood. But as we unfold the passage, especially chapter 10, we see that Daniel is is in some distress because of these visions that he receives. He first sees a vision of what seems to maybe be the, the God in all of his glory. The imagery is very similar to images we see in the book of Revelation. And then we also see uh, angels coming to him and reviving him after he passes out twice. Daniel has to be repeatedly strengthened. But he's strengthened with God's word and God's presence. I think you could see in this a summary of the entire book. God giving his word to his people in the midst of troubled times in order to strengthen them. In order to help them endure. So Daniel functions as a kind of microcosm of the people of God. He himself is being strengthened here in this moment, and God's people are strengthened by the word that Daniel receives. This morning we're going to look at two primary ways that Daniel and we are strengthened. We're strengthened first by God's presence and love And we're strengthened by God's word. As we think about how to live in troubled times, we're strengthened by God's presence and love. And we're strengthened by God's word. So to begin with this morning, we're going to look at, uh, we're going to read all of chapter 10. And then we will dive in and uh, look at these points uh, and read parts of the rest of the passage as we go. So go ahead and read with me, beginning in this is, uh, Daniel chapter 10, beginning on page 748 of the Bibles provided. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel who was named Belteshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies. No meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, 
I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris. I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his word was like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed. I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and, and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me twenty-one days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia, and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke. I said to him who stood before me, O my Lord, by reason of vision, pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me, and he said, O man greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you, be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side except Michael, your prince. This is God's word. The first we see here that God strengthens his people with his presence and love. Here in Daniel chapter 10, Daniel experiences a unique visitation of God and a unique experience of God's presence and love. He's visited by these heavenly beings. And as I mentioned, this first figure stands in astonishing and even terrifying glory, right? His face is as bright as a lightning flash. The description from Daniel, as I said, is applied to the risen Christ in the first chapter of John's revelation. So Daniel may be having a vision of God in his glory here. Daniel receives, though, this vision that completely overwhelms him. And so he falls to the ground as if dead in a deep sleep. Then he's touched and revived, and you notice that, that each time he's revived, it's a, it's a multi-stage revival, right? He's first on hands and knees, and then strengthened further to stand on trembling feet. And then he receives another word that strikes him down, and he's mute, and he's touched, and touched again. So he's finally ready to hear what the Lord has to say to him. So the drama of this first chapter focuses on Daniel's weakness, right? He repeatedly says, I've got no strength left. 
And, but then the angel's tender care for him in reviving him. So the climax is, let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Right? He's finally ready near the end in verse 18 to be spoken to by the Lord. That's, all this is kind of just getting to this point where Daniel can receive what God has to say to him. The Lord strengthens Daniel with his presence, in this case, mediated by angels, angelic beings. But it's not merely their presence that alone strengthens Daniel. It's their message of love, right? So twice in verses 11 and 19, the angel says to Daniel that he is greatly loved. In verse 19, the words are even more tender and encouraging, and they are powerful words. Look at what what we read there. And he said, O man, greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you, be strong and of good courage. And then Daniel responds, and as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, My Lord, speak, for you have strengthened me. But just very, very simply, the angel says, Be strong, and Daniel reports being strengthened, right? The word has the power of God's own word. God's word is spoken to Daniel in a way that brings him strength. Well, why why is this? Why is this chapter focused on this drama of Daniel's weakness and strengthening? Well, throughout the book of Daniel, Daniel is both a prophet to exiles, but he's also an example of how to endure extraordinary suffering. He lived through the exile himself, And he lived through the the tumult of the rise and fall of Babylon's empire and then the rise of the Persian empire. And he certainly heard about the rise and fall of other empires as well. During the same time, he also witnesses from afar the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple back home. So over and over again, Daniel experiences huge tumult. He's in terrifying circumstances thrown to the lion's den. His his buddies are thrown in the fiery furnace. And through it all, Daniel shows God's people how to survive in times of trouble. He's constant in prayer. He's faithful to his God. He's wise. He's bold. But most importantly, Daniel can be all those things because he's greatly loved and blessed by God. The Lord is about to provide Daniel with a grand survey of troubled times to come. And so the Lord strengthens Daniel to hear this message. And so Daniel, again, becomes like a microcosm of God's people. The Lord shows God's people they can endure these troubled times of persecution because of the presence and love of God. As they are strengthened by God, they can endure And of course, the very words that Daniel receives and records become a strength to God's people in troubled times. I read a quote in a book a couple of weeks ago that the original language of the scriptures is God's love. God provides us his word because he loves his people. He communicates his love in his word. And so these scriptures that Daniel records become something that God's people can turn to when the trouble comes and know that none of this took God by surprise, but God is working through this. Daniel's own experience testifies that God hears the humble prayers of his people, even in Babylon, even amidst the tumult of empires rising and falling, God hears 
and answers prayer. And God communicates his presence and love by his true word. We'll look at that more in our second point, about how God strengthens us with his word. But before we go there, I want us to apply this truth to ourselves. We can't apply this truth by expecting angelic visits. God does not bless us with his presence through angelic appearances, at least not ordinarily. Rather, our Lord promises us something greater. And that's why we read from John 14 earlier in our service. God reveals his love and presence for us through the gift of the Holy Spirit. As I said, John 14 is Jesus trying to prepare his disciples for this troubled future that awaits them. Right? In the very short term, it's the troubled future of him being dead in the grave for three days. But in the longer term, it's him ascending to the Father and, and not being with them in bodily form. He's telling them this because he knows persecutions will come. Right? The prince of this world is, is rising up. They're going to be persecuted for their faith. And, and this, in this case, a very intense form in, during Christ's crucifixion, but has this other form as he goes to be with his father. And so what's the solution? It's to promise them that he will be with them, that he and his father are sending the helper to them. He calls him the spirit of truth and the Holy Spirit. Jesus says that the Holy Spirit is with them and will be in them. God's Spirit will indwell his people. And so God the Father and God the Son will come and they will make their home with God's people by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Lord strengthens his people with his presence and love. Because of the presence and love of God that we have in, within us, the Holy Spirit we don't have to pretend that everything is okay in our world. Right? We can look out of our windows and see the many ways that God's truth is under attack and that people would oppose Christians in our practice of the faith. We can look at this in our own culture. We can look at this around the world. So because we're indwelled by the Spirit, we don't turn a blind eye to those things, but we also don't cower in fear. We can stand in the midst of troubled times because we know that in Christ, we are greatly loved by God. The troubles that we may experience are not evidence that God's forsaken us. We know that God is with us. We know that Christ died to take away our sin, and so we have peace with God. Doesn't Christ promise peace to his people? We know that Christ rose again and has given us his spirit, and so we have no reason to be afraid or to let our hearts be troubled. We know that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So we know that God hears our prayers, and even God is making the prayers on our behalf that we don't know how to make. We know that Christ is coming again for us. And so, again, our hearts are not troubled by the powers of this world. The image of Daniel here in his old age and his weakness is apt for us. Right? He, he's overwhelmed by all that he sees and hears. And God's messengers repeatedly strengthen him so that he can even just form words. We know that we are weak, don't we? And yet in our weakness, the Lord strengthens us. His spirit testifies that we are sons of God. 
We are loved. We are not alone. And so we stand, often on trembling knees, and we're strengthened. And as we're strengthened, what do we do? We seek to hear God's word and understand it. And we trust that God's spirit gives us understanding. We're strengthened and we, we seek to have our, our lips strengthened so that we can proclaim the gospel to each other and to the lost. We're strengthened so we can live faithfully in this world. We can do this because God is with us and he loves us by the power of the Holy Spirit. There's something wonderfully simple about this vision of the Christian life. It's not flashy. We're not advertising our own power. Instead, we're placing our hope in our God who is powerful. When Christians are strengthened by God to trust and obey, when we endure, even through extreme trials, we're putting God's glory on display. Brothers and sisters, do you know that you are greatly loved by God? He has sent his spirit into your hearts. And by your faith in the Son of God, you are a son of God. You've been adopted into God's family by your heavenly Father. And because of the spirit of adoption, we can call out to him, Abba, Father, and know that he hears our prayers. By his spirit, he reveals his truth to you. He is with you now. He will never leave you or forsake you. God strengthens his people by his presence and love. We've already mentioned that in Daniel's case, the presence and love of God are accompanied by God's word. It's not some sort of amorphous power. It's communicated in words. I think that's really the emphasis of this chapter, that God strengthens Daniel with his word. And again, this is what verse 1 of chapter 10 is all about. A word was revealed to Daniel, and the word was true, and he understood the word. Here in Daniel, we're going to look at some specific ways God's word strengthens us. And we'll spend the rest of our time unpacking these three ways we're strengthened by the word. God's word tells us the truth about times of trouble. That's one way God's word strengthens us. It tells us the truth about times of trouble. Secondly, God's word assures us that God is sovereign. He strengthens us by assuring us that he is sovereign. And third, God's word promises resurrection life. We're strengthened by the promise of resurrection life. So in the inspired, infallible revelation of God, we find power to endure persecution we find strength from the word of God. This first way of strengthening, telling the truth in times of trouble, is counterintuitive. Right? We don't want to hear about trouble, right? But God tells us that troubling times are coming. And that's largely what chapter 11 is all about. The Lord prophetically surveys what's about to happen in the next three or four centuries of Israel, and it's all troubled times. We've been over some of this territory before in chapter 8, but the Lord goes into even more granular detail here in chapter 11. Scholars agree that much of what's described in chapter 11 aligns with historical records of the long struggle between two kingdoms in this region. 
These are the Seleucid kingdom and the Ptolemaic kingdom. So these two kingdoms were kind of offshoots of Alexander the Great's reign. After he reigns, his kingdom is divided up into four, and these are two of the four. The Seleucid kingdom was based in Syria, and in this chapter, Daniel refers to this kingdom and the various members of this dynasty as with, with the title, the King of the North. So we're going to meet lots of kings of the north. The Ptolemaic kingdom is based in Egypt, and so Daniel refers to those in that dynasty with the title, the King of the South. So again, multiple kings of the south are mentioned in this chapter. If you can put your geography thinking cap on for a minute and envision Syria and Egypt and imagine what's in the middle of them, it's Jerusalem. So these two kingdoms are warring with each other and they're just bulldozing over Jerusalem again and again. God's people are stuck in the middle, at the crossroads of this tug of war between these two kingdoms. We're not going to read the entire chapter, but we're going to try to get the sense of it. So let's begin by reading chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. And it begins with this angelic figure telling Daniel of how he fought, this angel fought on behalf of Darius the Mede to prop him up until uh, the Greeks come. So let's read the first few verses of chapter 11. And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has come, become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he is arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of, the he of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others beside these. Then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule, and his authority shall be great authority. After some years they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure, but she shall be given up in her attendance. He who fathered her, and he who supported her in these times. That gives you a pretty good flavor of what we find. Kings described, them falling, others rising up in their places, and again, kind of a back and forth as these two kingdoms attack and invade and then retreat. In the next paragraphs, the chronicle continues, and we see in verse 14 that the Israelites themselves get caught up in the struggle. So the angel reveals to Daniel that the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. It seems that some Israelites thought that they could speed along God's plan if they took up arms against the Ptolemaic kingdom on behalf of the Seleucids. But it turns out to be kind of a tragic decision because it's eventually a Seleucid king, Antiochus Epiphanes, who will terrorize Jerusalem and destroy the or desecrate the temple with a false god. Scholars agree that he appears on the scene in verse 21. There shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. It's known that Antiochus should not have gotten the kingdom, but he got it by deceit and treachery. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant." 
Antiochus takes on this larger-than-life appearance because of his, his hatred for Israel and his repeated attacks on the priesthood, which is probably what's referred to by the Prince of the Covenant. A priest was murdered, and then Antiochus sold the high priesthood at least twice to others who rose up and, and paid him off to get this important position within Jerusalem. We were told in chapter 11 that this king makes at least a couple of forays into Egypt, and twice he's rebuffed by the Romans, and we hear about that again in verse 29. This is the second time he's forced out by the Romans, who are described to here as the ships of Katim. So let's read in verse 29 and following. At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south. So this is Antiochus coming from north to south. But it shall not be this time as it was before, for ships of Katim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw and turn back and be enraged and take action against the holy covenant. So this is speaking of Israel and Jerusalem. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action and the wise among the people shall, shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help. And many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the, end of the, until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. When you're reading through and trying to map on the prophecy to the historic record, really verse 35 ends the period when scholars are fairly sure that this is talking about the period of Antiochus. After 35, it gets a little less easy to map on to anything that we can find in the historical record. Of course, anytime you're doing this, you have to admit that our ancient sources are scarce. So all attempts to map things on are, are provisional. But these last two verses, though, show us the saints under distress and fighting back. We see that they receive a little help. And this may describe what's known as the Maccabean Revolt, where uh, Jews band together to, to get the temple back. But it's not really a permanent solution. We fear that, hear that the saints suffer, that they're refined, that some of them fall by the flame and the sword. As we move on into verses 36 through the end of chapter 11, this is the place where scholars are most unsure. But many think what's happening now is that Antiochus Epiphanes, in all of his terror, is being used as a kind of type for the Antichrist. So that this, these verses may be pointing forward to future figures who will act in the same manner with pride and deceit and persecution against God's people. So let's read beginning in verse 36. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god. He shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished. For what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the god of the fort of fortresses instead of these, a god whom his fathers did not know. He shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortress with the help of a foreign god. Those who acknowledge him he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price." 
At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind, with chariots and horsemen and with many ships. And he shall come into countries and shall overthrow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land, and tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab and the main parts of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of treasuries of gold and of silver and of all the precious things of Egypt, and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him, and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction, and he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain, yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. Again, scholars, some think this, these, this is using biblical imagery to forecast a future of, of warring kings and those who would persecute God's people and grow to great power. Some think it's just a review of things that Antiochus did in elevated language. But let me highlight a few things that Daniel has to say about this archetypal evil ruler. First, verse 21, he's contemptible. He's notable for his evil character. Verses 21 and 23 tell us that he operates by flattery and deceit. In verse 28, we see that he's set against the holy covenant. He attacks and persecutes God's people. He also pays attention to those who forsake the covenant, which may refer to the way that Antiochus was happy to buy off unfaithful Israelites and to set Israelites against Israelites. Verse 36 describes a king who shall do as he wills. At times, he will appear unstoppable. God's word is clear and candid about the evil in this world. It's clear that evil rulers arise who are self-interested, who are ruthless, who are deceitful, and who will intentionally persecute God's people. And when evil people rise to power, it will mean that some of God's people will suffer by sword and flame and captivity and plunder. And yet the Lord says in verse 35 that this will be for their refinement and their purification. We'll talk more about that in a minute. The picture of evil that Daniel paints is one that's repeated by Jesus and Paul in the New Testament. So if you don't feel like you can figure out what all of these kings mean in Daniel chapter 11, we have some help from Jesus and Paul and John. They don't tell us all the details, but they do say that there will be powerful, ruthless, deceitful, antichrist figures who will come and terrorize God's people. So in John in Mark chapter 13 and Matthew 24, Jesus speaks of a figure who will embody kind of personify the abomination of desolation and he will stand in the temple. This is probably a prophecy to Jesus' contemporaries about, about the coming destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in the coming years under Roman emperors. So there's prophecy from Jesus about future evil characters that are coming. The Apostle Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2 talks about the man of lawlessness who will exalt himself over every so-called God, probably quoting Daniel chapter 11, verse 36, to refer to some future figure that will arise, or maybe future figures in the plural. The book of Revelation also describes similar figures, even using Daniel's own language of beasts. 
And John also tells his readers in 1 John chapter 2 that many antichrists have come and that antichrist is coming. He says this is the antichrist, he who denies the father and the son. These are certainly descriptions of troubled times, of people coming who oppose God and his people, who will deny the truth and who will seek to deceive others. Now, how does this help us? How does this strengthen anyone to be told these things? Well, very simply, it strengthens us by preparing us. Right? The saying goes, to be forewarned is to be forearmed. We know what's coming. Not in every specific detail, but we are not surprised that there are people who arise who appear to have great success and who oppose God and his ways who operate by evil means, who are full of lies and flattery, right? There are, history is littered with such figures, and the newspapers are littered with such figures. I'm not arguing that any political leader now is the Antichrist, but as John says, a spirit of Antichrist pervades. The truth about trouble also strengthens us by protecting us against deception, and this is something that both Jesus and John were both concerned about in the things they spoke of. So Jesus said in Mark 13, 22, For false Christs, plural, and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. He's telling us beforehand so we can be on guard against those who would deceive us. In his first letter, John writes, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you. The anointing that you receive from Christ. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. What's he talking about there? Isn't it the gift of the Holy Spirit, the anointing of God's Spirit, the Spirit of truth who teaches us? God wants us to know. He forewarns us that times of trouble are coming, but what we have been taught from the Scriptures about Jesus is true. It's bedrock, immovable truth. The gospel is true. And so hold fast to the gospel. We've been anointed by God's Spirit. God is with us. And so hold fast to the truth that's been revealed to you. By holding fast to the truth, by the grace of God, we will endure. Fight deception by holding fast to the truth of God's Word. When we look around at the world, we don't need to be convinced that things are going wrong. We know that evil and powerful and deceitful people exist and they have great influence. Just to take an example that's close at hand, today is the first Sunday in what many in our culture celebrate as Pride Month. It's a month when rebellion against God's design for sexuality is celebrated, and there's great social pressure to join in the celebration. You're going to be called a bigot if you don't join in. You could even lose your job if you say the wrong thing. Like the evil ruler that Daniel describes, it appears that those who advocate for this, they do as they will. 
right? This is, it shows up in Major League Baseball parks and Target stores and in the places where you work. There are even some who call themselves Christians who've been deceived into wrongly saying that Christians should celebrate and affirm these so-called alternative lifestyles. Now, we can't say all of this is happening because of some specific antichrist that we've identified, some specific ruler, but isn't there a spirit of antichrist present in the pride? Arrogant lies are being proclaimed as if they're just common sense. God's truth is, is denied and decried. People are deceived into thinking that they can find joy and fulfillment by indulging in sin. We may sorrow, and, and rightly sorrow, to see our neighbors deceived, but we're not surprised that such pride is celebrated. The Lord has strengthened us with the truth that troubled times like this will come. And he's armed us with the truth so that we can follow Daniel's example. We can live faithfully and wisely and prayerfully in a troubled world. Daniel did the things he did knowing that his faithfulness would lead him into harm's way, right? He went into the lion's den. He spoke up, though, and testified in the court of Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar and Darius. Now, in a sermon, it's impossible to address all the specific ways that you are being called to be faithful. But I can say that all of us are called to be faithful and prayerful and to trust in the truth of God's word. Be bold when the pressure is on. By God's grace, I can seek to equip you with the word that strengthens us. You might say that one way to describe a church's ministry is to equip the saints with the word of God so that we can persevere through times of trouble. So we're doing this here as we're gathered to hear God's word, and by God's grace, we do this for each other. We strengthen each other with his word. So God's word strengthens us by telling us the truth about times of trouble. God's word also strengthens us by assuring us of God's sovereignty. Even when the troubles are at their worst, God is still on his throne. God's sovereignty has been one of the major themes of the book of Daniel. So if you can remember back to chapter 4, Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar that God rules the kingdom of men and he gives it to whom he will, right? A few verses later, after Nebuchadnezzar has been humiliated and restored, Nebuchadnezzar, the foreign king of Babylon, confesses that the mighty God does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand. God is sovereign. He does what he wills. He's sovereign over all rulers and authorities. God would strengthen us with the assurance that he is sovereign. If you read through the prophecies of Daniel chapter 11, you see this borne out, right? Kings come and go. They rise and fall. Their time runs out. But we also get an added dimension of God's sovereignty over the affairs of men in chapter 10. If you were paying attention as we read, perhaps some alarm bells went off when we read about in verse 13, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. Daniel is told about battles going on in the angelic and demonic realm, that there's a prince of Persia warring against this angelic being who's talking to Daniel. And he's saying, I was delayed for 21 days because I was fighting this guy, but now I'm here. And there's a guy named Michael, and he fights for you. Now, none of this is told so that we will start speculating about where our archangels are or what they're doing. 
And notably, we don't see Daniel praying to any angels to protect him. We don't see Daniel engaged in any kind of spiritual warfare here. These things, though, are told to Daniel to encourage him. God is in charge, and God is fighting for his people. Brothers and sisters, this tells us God is at work in the world in ways that we have no idea about. He is in control. In the New Testament, we see that Jesus rose from the dead, and he's been seated in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one that is to come. Jesus is in authority over all these princes and principalities that we cannot see. God wants us to know that he is sovereign. God's king is in charge. He rules and he sits on his throne. We've already mentioned that the final king in Daniel 11 seems to be unstoppable, but then we read at the very end of the chapter that he stopped, right? The very last verse of chapter 11 says, He shall come to his end and none to, there'll be none to help him. Just like all these other figures, right? He dies. In Mark chapter 13, Jesus says that God shortens the days of the troubles for the sake of his elect. God will sovereignly bring all evildoers to their end. According to Revelation 20, Jesus says that he will cast even death and Hades into the lake of fire. All evil comes to an end. The Lord will finally save us through times of trouble. We can see this further in verse tw uh, chapter 12, verse 1. At that time shall arise Michael, this great prince who is charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as has never been seen since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. God's sovereignty is ultimately good news because he's not only the sovereign God, he's the saving God. He will deliver his people no matter what trouble comes. The book that Daniel refers to here is called the Lamb's Book of Life in Revelation 21. The names written in that book cannot be erased. The Lord loses none that have been given into his hand. So we are strengthened by the truth from Scripture that God is in control, that he is sovereign. This is the word of truth that the angel came to deliver to Daniel. Kings will rise and fall. The world is a war zone. And God's people are right in the thick of it all. And though we are weak in ourselves, there is a final ultimate sense in which we are not vulnerable. Martin Luther lived amidst his own time of trouble that he almost in some ways caused, right? His own world of upheaval, but he put it this way. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever. We are strengthened because we belong to the one who is in charge of it all. His kingdom is forever. Daniel's had a lot to say about that as well, hasn't he? We were bought with the Lamb's blood. Our names are written in his book, and he will deliver us. Before we move on from Daniel, there's one last way that we see that God's word strengthens us. That is, he strengthens us with the promise of resurrection life. This promise builds on the idea that God's people's names are written in his book. Look on chapter 12, verses 2 through 4. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, 
and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the, like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. These verses are noteworthy because they're the place in the Old Testament where the Lord speaks the most clearly about the resurrection from the dead. Here is the message, though, that God's people need when troubles come. Even though some are going to be running around like chickens with their heads cut off, looking for new knowledge, here is what God wants us to hear, that there is a resurrection coming. The wise will be raised from the dead to blessed, righteous, eternal life with God. The same thing is echoed to Daniel in the final verse of the book. In some ways, the book only continues because Daniel has more questions, which are answered in confusing ways. But the ultimate answer there is in verse 13. Go your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of days. This is all there is for you, Daniel. This is all the revelation. Go your way, but notice the order. You shall rest and then you shall stand in your allotted place at the end of days. First rest and then stand. We may die before Christ returns. We may die at the hands of evil rulers. But even that death is only a rest for the people of God. We will rise again. The Lord strengthens us with the promise of resurrection life. We find this language of rest echoed in Revelation 14, 13. A voice says to John, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Rest. This is the blessing now for those who die in the Lord. Today, if you die trusting in Christ, you rest in him. The Holy Spirit testifies that we will be with Christ when we die. Didn't Jesus make that promise to the thief on the cross? Today you will be with me in paradise. And didn't Paul long to die and be with the Lord? But even that blessing of rest is not the end. All the dead who are resting will be raised on the last day when Christ returns. Listen to this promise and this charge from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 and 58. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is in the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Now notice how Paul ends. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, 
immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So Paul says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, our mortal decayed bodies that lay in the dust of the earth, they will rise. They will put on what is imperishable, immortality, like Christ's own body. And he says, this blessing is not ours because of anything we've done. It's ours because God has given us the victory through Jesus Christ, who has dealt with our sin and borne the curse of the law. This promise is granted to us by the grace of God. And it's guaranteed to us by the gift of the life-giving spirit who already indwells in us. And so now we live by faith in this promise of Christ that we have overcome death. The sting of death has been removed by our crucified, risen, and exalted Savior. And then he ends with a call to be strong, right? Steadfast, immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. So when it seems like the the enemy is prevailing, when faithfulness seems costly or pointless, when sin and death seem unstoppable, be steadfast. Remain strong, doing the works of the Lord, because our true king lives and reigns. He's defeated death, and he will deliver us from death on the last day. The Lord came to Daniel to strengthen him. He strengthened him with his presence and his love and his word of truth. And the Lord is still at work strengthening his people through the indwelling of this Holy Spirit. He is with us. The Holy Spirit speaks God's word to us, God's word of love. Our Father says to us, because of your faith in the Son of God, You are greatly loved, sons of God. I am with you to the end. And we look forward to that day when he will say, Well done, good and faithful servants. The Lord has prepared us for the trouble that is here and that is coming. And we are prepared. We don't have to go running to and fro for some new revelation because God has spoken to us in his Son, Christ who died and rose and sat down at God's right hand. He is the Lamb of God who's taken away our sin. He's the King of kings who's sovereign over all the affairs of men. And if our names are written in his book, then we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Let's pray. Father, you have strengthened us, and we are strengthened by your word. We pray for your help that we will leave this place strong, immovable, trusting in the resurrection power of Christ. We pray that we would strengthen one another with your word, that we will be a church where we're committed to doing each other's spiritual good by proclaiming the gospel. And we pray that we will preach this message of good news to our lost and dying world. That by God's grace, we would be used to rescue some. That you would work through our gospel proclamation 
and sinners would come to know you, Lord. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.